Lord, for just the wonderful way that you are meeting us this morning. And I pray that you would continue to pour out your spirit, that you would lead us as we study the word that you wrote, that it would find fertile soil in the hearts that you have redeemed, and that we would produce fruit that lasts. For your honor and for your glory, I pray. Amen. Well, this morning I'm going to begin a short series of messages that addresses the issue of Christian leadership. And I'm going to examine examples of Christian leadership from the lives of three of God's choice servants. Today we're going to talk about Hezekiah and talk about the what of Christian leadership. What do Christian leaders do? Next week I'm going to talk about Josiah, King Josiah and suggest why Christian leaders lead, so the why of Christian leadership. And then in two weeks, I'm going to talk about the relationship between the Apostle Paul and Philemon, and suggest some principles of the how of Christian leadership. Someone has said that there are three types of people in the world. One type of person is the immovable. This is the person who says, Go ahead, try to make me grow. (laughs) Come will or come woe, the status is quo. (laughs) Now that's, of course, an over-exaggeration, isn't it? But sometimes it thinks like there's people that just say, you know, I'm I'm just here and this is where I am and that's it. That's one type of person. But then there are two other types of people that we find. One is the movable, the teachable, those who are willing to grow and those who are willing to move. And then there's a third person, and that's the ones who move the movables. Leaders influence the movable to move, and they move them to do something. Um, Leaders are all over in our lives. Parents, I think, are leaders, aren't they? Because they influence their children to grow. And so parents are leaders. I think teachers are leaders. Teachers in the local church. uh, Teachers in the public schools and the private schools. And teachers who, parents who teach their children in homeschool environments. They are leaders because they are leading and uh, influencing their students to grow. And friends can be leaders. Friends, as iron sharpens iron, influence each other to grow. I know that I've had the privilege of influencing some friends, and more often, friends influence me. And when we influence one another, we are doing what I would suggest is leadership, influencing others to grow. Now, the reason I'm speaking about this subject is that in the life of our church, uh, we're at a point in our journey where this issue is a very important consideration. Um, Our nominating committee was able to identify and recognize to the congregation some really qualified and gifted people to serve as elected leaders. And I want to talk about leadership in the church this morning. Think about what that looks like in the church. 
Actually, there are many who are leading in our church who are not necessarily elected, but they've been appointed and they've been raised up to lead all over in our ministry and our programs. And I am so thankful. Aren't you thankful for our leaders, for people who are saying, yes, I'll step up and I'll take the risk and I will enter into this area of seeking to influence and to lead people in our congregation. Now, this term leadership evokes all sorts of images. Some imagine that a Christian leader is a person who can do anything and then who can influence other people to do the same. Superman, <laughs> Wonder Woman, right? And, and since none of us is Superman and none of us is Wonder Woman, we get defeated before we even begin. And we just say, leadership in the church, that's, that's, that's way above my pay grade, we say. And then we might also think, unfortunately, that a person who is a leader in the church becomes the target of uh, unjust feedback and pushback when they try to lead. Um, the reality is that the church is made up of people, <laughs> made up of imperfect people, including the pastor. We're all imperfect. And so... When we try to do this thing called leadership, sometimes it gets messy. And sometimes there is a price to pay. But I would like to share with you an overriding truth, and that is that Christian leadership, in spite of the fact that it might be overwhelming and sometimes it's not the easiest thing, it is incredibly rewarding and fulfilling. I was commenting to my wife a few weeks ago, you know, I just love pastoral leadership. And she looked at me and I said, because it's so interesting. There's never, there's never a week that's the same as the previous one. There's always something new that happens. There's always a new challenge. There's always a new blessing. And I run into someone who blesses my socks off. And then I see a problem and I think, and of course my personality type is, I love tackling problems. I love to get in there and try to figure out how to move us off the dime and, and get us working towards solution to problem. That's just, that's just my personality. And I want you to know that there's no greater privilege in the world than Christian leadership in the local church. And I'm going to suggest this morning that really it's not all that complicated. Christian leadership is within the reach of lots of Christians who may think they can't lead. And so over the messages of this week and next week and the following week, I'd like to challenge you to consider this question. Does God have a leadership role for me? Would you ask that question? Would you think, could God ever use me as someone who could influence someone else for the Lord? And I'd like to suggest that it's possible that he might be asking you to do that. And I'd like to suggest to you that it's really not that difficult to know what it is that he wants you to do. 
So I'd like us to look at the prophet Isaiah today, chapter 36. And I'd like to look at the example of how King Hezekiah entered into this enterprise, what I call leadership, and describe to you what I think is a fundamental principle of the what of Christian leadership. At this point in the history of Israel, Israel was divided into two nations, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom was Judah. And uh, Judah was led by some godly kings and some not-so-godly kings. And when Hezekiah came to the throne, he inherited an administration from one of those not-so-godly kings. In fact, he was a pretty godless king, Ahaz. And he made an alliance with this, this really pagan nation called Assyria. And Assyria um, uh, decided to enter into an agreement with Israel, uh, Judah, the southern kingdom, where Judah would then send an annual tax. I mean, and it was more than a tax. It was, it was a burden. And not only was there a financial burden, but this agreement required Israel to introduce the religion of Assyria to the landscape of Israeli culture. And the religion of Assyria was idolatrous. It was godless. Um, they required Israel to set up shrines all over the country. And they even required Israel to put an altar to false gods in the temple. And it was a very, it was a very difficult time for the nation of Israel. And when Ahaz the king died, Hezekiah took over the leadership and he faced a, a choice. And he said, boy, this is not right. And so Hezekiah began to um, follow the Lord. And he tore down all the shrines. And he took the idol and the altar out of the temple. And he stopped paying the tribute to Assyria. And he called the nation to observe the Passover. And he instituted religious faithfulness to God, Jehovah. Well, that didn't go over very well with Assyria. And so the Assyrians decided that they were going to come in and teach Hezekiah a lesson. And when they began to come in and teach, try to teach Hezekiah a lesson, Hezekiah gave us a wonderful example of what it is that Christian leaders do. The what of Christian leadership from the life of Hezekiah as he interacted with the Assyrians. We begin with the setting. Isaiah chapter 36, verses 1 to 3. I call this Assyrian aggression. So if you have your Bibles, keep them open because I'm going to read a lot of scripture today. And you want to follow along with me as I read. So here's the Assyrian aggression. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign. See, for 14 years, Hezekiah turned the tables and he began to institute uh, appropriate worship of Jehovah. Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Now, if you've ever seen the movie, trilo the, the movie series, The Lord of the Rings, and you remember the pictures of these armies that was marching against the, the city where the good guys were. I mean, the, the screen was just full of 
flank after flank after flank of soldiers that were marching, you know, against. And imagine that coming down the landscape, devouring all the cities and ending up at Jerusalem, which had a great big wall around it. Then they couldn't immediately uh, enter into the wall. They began to lay siege to it. Verse 2. So the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And when the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the landerer's field, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to meet him. So the army of Assyria came down, conquered Assyria, and then there was a delegation from Hezekiah that went out to meet the Assyrian general. And what happened next is what I call the negotiation. And so this is the crisis. The crisis in the story is found in chapter 36, beginning with verse 4, and I call it, quote, unquote, the negotiation. This is what happened. Verse 4. The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? In other words, Hezekiah, how dare you overturn the decrees of Assyria? You say that you have counsel and and fight and might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Then he gets sarcastic with Hezekiah. Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. Of course, they couldn't. And it was just kind of rubbing Hezekiah's nose in the ground because they were surrounded by this incredible 200,000 men army. How then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you're depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? There was a time when Egypt and Judah entered into an alliance to try to resist the Assyrians, but the Assyrians went down to Egypt and crushed them. And so that wasn't an option anymore. Therefore, furthermore, verse 18, I have come to you to attack and destroy this land without the Lord, The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Uh, Not. (laughs) That's just an outright lie. Verse 16. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me. Come out to me. Then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig trees and drink water from your own cisterns. And then when I come and I'll take you to the land of your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and of vineyards. Wow. They said, desert the Lord and we'll give you food and water and a nice trip to your new home where you'll have nice peaceful life in Assyria. What deceitfulness. Historians tell us that the Assyrians were the most ruthless conquering nation in history. They are exceedingly cruel to those that they displace. 
Assyrian deportation does not treat their captives in a humane, compassionate way. They're cruel. But you know, a promise that, come on over to our side. Isn't that what it always looks like when we're facing a crisis with a non-following God culture? I like that for a phrase, a non-following God culture. A culture that doesn't follow God. (laughs) Isn't it interesting that they always make these promises? Well, our life isn't so bad. Come on over. It's, It's going to be good for you. You'll enjoy it. And then, verse 18. Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says, The Lord will deliver us. Have the gods of any nation ever delivered their lands from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save their lands from me? So how then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? In whom do you trust? Is what this emissary from Sennacherib said. Notice the words, verse 4. Confidence. Depending. Depending on the Lord, verse 7. The whole idea is he's challenging. On whom are you depending? Who are you trusting? Will you trust the Lord or will you abandon him and submit to the great king of Assyria? Why trust the Lord? What's he ever done for you? This is a negotiator that that lists uh, all the reasons why Hezekiah and his people should not trust the Lord and simply give up. You're all alone. Ever felt all alone in the middle of a crisis? It's not true. That's a lie. The very one you're trusting is working against you. That's not true. God is for us. Who can be against us? And even if he did care for you, he's not not powerful enough to help you. Don't you feel that sometimes? You think, God, if you really were sovereign and king, how come you're not helping me? The king of Assyria has overpowered every other god. He will certainly do the same with your god, the world says. That's quite a crisis, isn't it? And that's really not much of a negotiation. So let's talk about how Hezekiah enters into battle with the king of Assyria. And when he does, he begins to lead. Here he was, trying to do the right thing for 14 years, overturning all the things that Assyria was trying to force Israel to do. And for what? Sometimes that's the way the Christian life feels to us, doesn't it? Think, God, I've been I've been serving you, I've been sacrificing for you, I've been doing the right thing, and then I lose my job. And then I get this disease, and then I experience this loss, and then and then this crisis happens. What's the use? And Hezekiah begins to understand that his people need to hear from a leader. And maybe you're here today wondering just what this Christian life is all about. Um, you know, sometimes we think that, that God is, is this genie. 
Some, some teachers, unfortunately, teach that all you have to do is do this, 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 and this, and you'll be healthy and wealthy. And that God is, God is just this genie who is your servant. And so if we just do all the things we want, then God will give us our every desire. He will give us favor. He will give us and all these other promises. And all we're doing with that message is we're making God my servant. That's backwards. Backwards. God is not our servant. He's our God. And Hezekiah knows that. Because unless there's someone to lead us to think differently, that's what we'll think. Unless there's someone to lead us to live differently, that's how we'll live. Unless there's a leader who says, no, this is the way. Walk in this way. Oh, how we need leaders to lead us to follow God. And as we see Hezekiah battling in this crisis, this is his finest hour. And he leads. Not like Rambo. Not like William Wallace. And not like Captain America and Iron Man. Here's how Hezekiah leads. Faced with what appears to be an unwinnable circumstance, verse 16. Hezekiah prays, O Lord, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God and you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib which he has sent to mock the living God. You see what Hezekiah is doing? He's painting a picture that, that God himself is being attacked. Verse 20, So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand. Why? That all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. The accusations of the Assyrian commander, like the lies of our sinful culture, are untruths and psychological manipulation. And so in worship, Hezekiah leads with the truth. God is the Lord of hosts. God is enthroned above all the angels. God is holy. God is one of a kind. And God rules the nations. He rules Assyria. And God created the heaven and the earth. And instead of pleading for himself, Hezekiah prays for God to uphold his reputation. His meaning God's reputation. Here is a prayer that is always answered. Dear God, defend or defeat those who mock you and promote your Glory. So, you know, that's a prayer that God's going to answer. Promote your glory. Defend your reputation. And if the glory of God is the essence of our prayer, we can have confidence that God will respond. 
So let's look at God's response. Let's look at the solution. Isaiah 37, verses 29 to 35. Verse 29, God says to the king of Assyria, listen to this. Because your rage against me and because your insolence has reached my ears, listen to this. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will make you return by the way you came. Can't you just see Sennacherib just going around and... That's what God says to him. He says, you mock me? (laughs) Think again. Verse 33 says to Hezekiah, Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter the city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with a shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city. And then verse 35. I will defend this city and save it. Why? For my sake and for the sake of my servant, David. For my sake, who I am, and for the sake of my servant, his promises. He made a promise to David. And so for the sake of God's glory and for faithfulness to his promises, God will move. God will promote his glory. Nations who have hated God today, they're just a chapter or two in our history books. Leaders who hate God, I'll tell you, there are some who are gaining a lot of press today, who hate God there might be a word or two on a tombstone in a cemetery somewhere. God will play second fiddle to no earthly king, no earthly nation, no earthly author, no movie star, no TV talk show host. He will play second fiddle to no political candidate. He will promote and protect his reputation, and he will bring justice on his enemies. And I would suggest to you that Hezekiah led, and this is the way Hezekiah led. And I think this is the what of Christian leadership. The what of Christian leadership is to lead others to confidently trust the Lord who upholds his glory. It's as simple as that. God will protect and promote his reputation. Leaders lead others to trust him. We can trust God to be faithful to who he is. We can trust God to fulfill his promises to us. And leaders promote the glory of God. They promote God's glory. Not our glory. Not our legacy, not our history, not what we want to do. We promote the glory of God. And leaders influence people to trust God, and leaders promote the glory of God, affirming who he is. In their darkest hour, Hezekiah led his people to trust God. Facing this incredible army, this threat to them, Hezekiah led and he said, trust in God. 
trust in God. That's the what of Christian leadership. Influence others to confidently trust the Lord who upholds his glory. And brothers and sisters, I would suggest to you that if you can influence people to trust God and to have assurance that he will promote his glory in their lives, even in the midst of difficulty, you're a leader. And there's a place for you in the local church. You might ask, well, I thought leadership, I had to know about strategy and goals and objectives and about vision and personnel management and human resources initiatives and risk assessment and conflict resolution and team dynamics and fundraising. I thought I had to know all that stuff to be a leader in the church. Well, and this is just my opinion. If you can lead people to trust God and promote his glory, you'll have executives and managers and experts in goals and objectives and vision and experts in personnel management and experts in human resources and risk assessment and human resources and conflict management. These people will flock to you and say, teach us how to trust God in the midst of difficulty. We'll take care of all the rest. See, I think that's Christian leadership. Christian leadership is Christian. Please, teach us how to trust God. This business of of working in the church is difficult. It's challenging. This business of being a Christian in a secular world is difficult. Teach me how to trust God. If you can help people know how to live these truths... That God is faithful to who he is. And God will fulfill and be true to what he says. And then if you empower those who are gifted in getting things accomplished and can come alongside and encourage them along the way, in my opinion, that's the what of Christian leadership. And that's the reason why we are suggesting an amendment to our senior pastor job description. Because number one responsibility of the senior pastor of a local church is to nurture his walk with God. To make sure that he has time for prayer and that he loves to pray. To make sure that he has time for rest to make sure that he has time for renewal. Because if a senior pastor of a local church is not fully engaged with God, if he himself is not trusting God, how can he lead anyone to trust God? And if a senior pastor fails in his own personal spiritual life, he'll fail. That has to be number one. And I implore you, when your next long-term pastor comes, board, hold him accountable for his own personal life. And church, support him. Make sure that he has time to nurture his life with God. Ian and I talk about that a lot. And I say to Ian, make sure you got time with God. Take a day. Go be with God. 
I'm pretty excited about how Ian's grown in his ministry, by the way. He's doing a great job for us. But it's got to start there. Because anything that any pastor does in his own strength will fail. So what's the resolution? Well, God honors that type of leadership. Verse 37, or chapter 37, verse 36. Look at what happened. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Syrian camp. (laughs) 185,000? Do you know how many that is? And when the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. (laughs) That's a pretty interesting way for the writer to put it, isn't it? There were all the dead bodies. What a surprise. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew and returned to Nineveh and stayed there the same way he came. That's what God said he would do. One day while he was worshiping in the temple of his god Nisroch, his sons Adramalak and Serizar killed him with the sword and they escaped in the land of Ararat. And Asherhaddon, his son, succeeded him as king. <laughs> Alice in Wonderland, you know that story? Alice is on a journey and she meets the Cheshire cat. And says, where would, would you please tell me which way I ought to go from here? And the Cheshire cat says, well, where is it that you want to go? And Alice says, I don't care. And the Cheshire cat says, well, then it doesn't matter which way you go. Brothers and sisters, Christian leadership is not like that at all. Christian leadership knows exactly where it's going. And where are we going? We trust God. We trust God, knowing that He will uphold and defend His reputation and promote His glory. So I conclude with a verse from 1 Peter who talks about Christian leadership. And it goes like this. 1 Peter chapter 4. If anyone speaks... They should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. Any leader who speaks anything other than the word of God is just promoting himself. If anyone serves the ones the leader leads and empowers, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things, here it is, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. So I ask you, will you consider, maybe God, maybe God has a place for you to lead in our church. Maybe to lead our children to learn how to trust God. Maybe to lead our youth in how to trust God. Maybe to lead or host a a community group so you can get together and talk about how to trust God. Maybe in our women's ministries or our men's ministries so that you can get together and learn how to trust God. Maybe God has a role for you in some capacity where you have the privilege of influencing somebody to trust God. That is the what of leadership. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to 
Make this the foundation of everything we do in our church. Oh, Lord, I know that there are practical things that you have to do as a leader. There are some skills that you need to learn, but skills can be learned. You can always learn how to do something. The one who knows how to trust God, that's a lifelong pursuit of God, the Holy Spirit, building within us character. And the character of the leader begins by learning how to trust God and then giving a desire to overflow in the life of someone else that they too might learn to trust God. Help us and teach us to trust God in our church. In your name we pray. Amen.